Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 4 is where we are as we're working our way through this Old Testament prophet with a message that is thousands of years old, but incredibly timely for us. So as you're finding Daniel 4, as we mentioned every week, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please, please uh, consider taking that Bible as your own, as our gift to you. We'd, we'd love for you to, to keep that, to read it. Um, and I, I just think you'd be really helped if you actually opened up the Bible and followed along with us. If, if you're not used to looking up books in the Bible, I realize Daniel may be a bit of a a difficult book to find. You can find it on the Bible that you may have in the rack in front of you on either of those two page numbers listed above. I think just we're just going to work through that chapter and apply it to our lives, and I think it'd be good for you to actually have your own copy of the Bible um, in front of you open as you're, as you're reading it. As you're finding that, let me mention that um, two Wednesdays from this week, a week from this Wednesday, May 25th, we are hosting Gareth Franks, who is a missionary to India. He and his family are from South Africa, and they are missionaries in India. They've planted two churches there. If you remember, we've mentioned this several times. This is the missionary pastor that Logan went to fill in for uh, a little over a year ago. Um, and served just very faithfully and fruitfully as an interim pastor for the church that Gareth pastors in a city called Nasik, India. And this is the same brother and churches that Robert and I visited this past February for about 10 days. Well, Gareth, uh, not not his family, just him, is going to be here in the United States at a conference in Denver. In fact, he's there now. And next week, uh, he will be with us, and so uh, he's, we're going to just be hanging out with him for the week and encouraging him, and, and on Wednesday night, May 25th, we're going to have a dinner for him here. We're going to eat dinner at 6, kind of like we do on Midweek Fellowship, sort of that sort of format. We'll eat at 6, and then we'll come in here into the sanctuary and have Garrett speak to us about their work in India. Now, we realize that's a difficult week. Um, It's just getting out of school. I think Muskogee County gets out this week and a few other schools get out that week. We realize that may be a challenging time, but I would love for you to come and hear from Gareth. This is a dear brother that we have just fallen in love with him and his family and his ministry and the work of God there in India. And I would love for you, if you are able to come and be encouraged and to hear about the work of God in a country with over a billion people with a very small percentage of Christians where they are doing a really, really good work. So we'd love for you to come RSVP uh, so we can have the right amount of food uh, available for that. And then Gareth will come encourage us. And if nothing else, he has a really awesome South African accent. So that may be worth the dinner right there. All right. Well, yeah, oh, there's a picture. Thank you for reminding me of that. That is Robert and I in Kalapur, India with Gareth. He is the guy with the kind of Indian vest on there in the middle with his family. Um, and just a dear brother. Would love for you guys to come. I wish his family was with him. We fell in love with him as well, but it'll just be, be Gareth Franks with us on Wednesday, May 25th. All right. Well, Daniel chapter 4. What is this chapter about? I think this chapter is 
a poignant and striking display of how God humbles the proud. Now, do you consider yourself a a proud person? Um, Well, maybe not, but I think all of us are to some degree. I think I've told you this story before, but um, when I was, I have one older brother. He is just almost three years older than I am. And when we were younger, um, I always sort of thought that my brother was big and strong and brawny. He, he was just a tough guy. And I was sort of small and scrawny. <laughs> and I always just kind of thought that I was a little bit smarter than my brother. And I felt like maybe he was a little slow. And he's not. I was just an arrogant little punk little brother. And my brother had written a report. I think I've told you this story before. He had written a report. Now, amazingly enough, you young people, this was back, they had this thing called paper. And he had like a pencil. He had to actually write out his report with a pencil. This would have been in the late 70s, probably early 80s. I think he was probably in sixth grade. I was probably in about third grade. And he wrote a report Uh, on this entertainer named Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. And I read my brother's report before he turned it in. It was just sitting out on the desk. And I thought, oh, my, my poor, slow, big brother. He doesn't even know how to spell the name Bill. And so, regrettably, I (laughs) thought my brother needed some help. And through that one-page report, I erased every NG and replaced it with two L's. And he turned in a report on Bill Crosby, who doesn't even exist. It's Bill Cosby. It was an unfortunate unfortunate display of pride on my part. Well, this text is about how God humbles the proud. Let me give you a little summary before we read, because we're going to read through it and stop along the way and make some observations, and then we're going to end with three reflections, three truths on how God handles the prideful. The story here is this King Nebuchadnezzar, who, as we've mentioned, has captured God's people. He has He has sacked Jerusalem and carried off God's people away away from the promised land, this Babylonian king. And all of this happened according to God's providence. In fact, we read at the beginning of Daniel that God did all of this. He gave Israel into the hands of their oppressors because of their years and years of rebellion and their constant uh, not hearing of his warning against them. And now Israel is in the hands of this foreign oppressor, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the first few chapters have been incidents where God has maintained a faithful group of people, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And even though God has shown himself miraculously in charge of all things, Nebuchadnezzar continues to resist God. And here in chapter 4 is really the last we'll hear about Nebuchadnezzar. After this, we'll hear about his son or grandson and then subsequent kings. So this is the last we hear of Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is about 30 years, some commentators uh, postulate, after uh, 
the chapter that we just read, chapter 3, where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued from the fiery furnace. So this is a long time that has transpired, and God's people are continuing to be subjugated by this king. And so the outline of this chapter is, is that really we have this confession of praise of God from Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning because he is going to be humbled by God. And then at the end of the chapter, we have this other, like a bookend confession of praise. And so it's really Nebuchadnezzar recounting this dream that he had and then the interpretation that is given by Daniel. So the beginning of the chapter, the first three verses, are kind of like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's summary of this whole chapter and him giving praise to God. And then the middle is the dream and the interpretation And then the end is another praise from Nebuchadnezzar. So let's read. And let me pray before I read. And we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Well, Father, as we come to your word, we, we, Lord, I beg that we would just not see Nebuchadnezzar as proud. Or maybe people that we disagree with politically as proud. But that we would see ourselves in this text. We are proud people. We need to be humbled. And Lord, thank you that the gospel is good news for the proud. Thank you that you delight in saving and humbling and turning self-worshippers into worshippers of you, the one true God. Lord, do that today, I pray. For unbelievers in this room, give them a heart to believe Give them the only hope for proud people. And for believers in this room, Lord, humble us in areas where we continue to allow pride to to rear its ugly head in our lives and make us more like Jesus, I pray. Father, I pray for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, my friend Bill Douglas. I pray for that congregation as they gather today and pray that they'd be encouraged and edified and that unbelievers would come to faith there. I pray for Northside Baptist Church down the street, just a few blocks away from us, that again, you would encourage that body, that your word would go forth in power, would save and change lives. Do the same here, Lord. We're completely dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So this is Nebuchadnezzar issuing this edict. He's really narrating chapter 4. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And remember at the end of chapter 3, at the end of the fiery furnace miracle, we were still kind of wondering, has Nebuchadnezzar really got it? Does he really acknowledge that God is the one true God? Well... We're going we're gonna to have to wrestle with that. We don't know the answer. It seems like probably that's the case at the end of this, this chapter. And it seems like maybe here at the beginning, he's recognizing the one true God. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. So remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar recounting in retrospective nature what is about to happen. So he's giving praise to God right up front for the scene that he is about to recount. Verse 4, he then tells this dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Remember, this happened in chapter 2. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Let me just pause there and and tell you that, that what he's dreaming here clearly is about this great tree that serves to actually bless the world. Now, for a an Israelite reader of this dream and this book, and then for an early New Testament reader of this dream and this book. It would have conjured up visions of what God said about his desire for his people, the nation of Israel. In fact, several times in the prophets it will speak about how God intends for his people to be like a tree that will serve to bless the world. In fact, we can trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where God tells Adam and Eve, I want you to to be my image bearers, to be my stewards over all creation. In other words, I'm going to bless my creation by making you my stewards of this creation. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve fall. They fail in that that role, that task, that mission given to them by God to be a blessing and to manage God's creation. And then we see it again in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a nation through you And I'm not just doing this for this particular nation, which eventually becomes Israel, but through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And then he says the very same things to us in the New Testament in the church. He's saying, I have a people, and through this people, I am going to display my glory to the world, and my people are meant to be a blessing, a place of haven, a place of rest, a place of blessing. And so these, these early readers of this would have, been, they would have conjured up in their mind. In fact, he mentions of the kingdom of God, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, this very same language. Let me read it, Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, Jesus when he's offering a parable about the parables about the kingdom, he says this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, isn't this interesting? And we're going to comment on this a little bit later. That he's saying, 
of this pagan, rebellious, wicked king Nebuchadnezzar in this dream that you're actually, we're going to find out that this is Nebuchadnezzar here in a moment. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But he's actually saying that King, King, King Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom is like that tree. But later on, we, we realize that God's intention is for his people to do that. So we'll figure that out in just a second. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar continues. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one. Don't be tripped up by that word watcher. That's just another way of saying an angel. Came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now look at this, right here, there's a turn midway through verse 15. He's been talking about a tree, but now he personalizes it, and this tree all of a sudden becomes a man. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be, the be, be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers or the angels, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. There's a truth for Americans in 2016, right? These angels are proclaiming in this dream that God is the Most High and He gives power to whom He will give power, right? Now, I know this has been a recurring theme in Daniel. We've gone over and over and over again about how God is in utter control and He sets up and tears down all authority. But it is good for us to hear it again, right? Isn't it good for us to hear it again? Amen? I mean, I was thinking about this today. A third of you probably weren't here the time that we were talking about God's power over human authority. A third of you probably were not really paying attention when we were talking about God's authority over human authority. And a third of you were paying attention, but those of us that were paying attention are dull-headed and we need reminding, right? Amen? I know I just called you dull-headed, but I'm with you. I mean, let's just spell out. Let's just take a moment. What are the implications of this? That means that God, it says there, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That means that Nebuchadnezzar was exalted to his place of authority by the hidden sovereign hand of God. That means that Alexander the Great was exalted to his position of authority by the hidden hand and for the sovereign purposes of God. That means Herod the Great, who murdered the babies of Israel in the early chapters of the Gospels to try and kill 
the Son of God, was put in his position by the hidden sovereign hand of God for his purposes. That means that Hitler was put in his position by the hidden hand of God for his purposes. That means Saddam Hussein was put in his role by the hidden hand of God for his secret purposes. That means that President Obama was put in the position he's in by the hidden providential sovereign hand of God for his divine purposes. That means that whatever happens on the first Tuesday of November in 2016, that the Trinity is not wringing its hands in anxiety because America has wrestled itself out of his control. Whoever is elected will be put in that position by the hidden sovereign control of God for his secret purposes. Rest in that, dear friend. Now that does not in any way release us from our responsibility. Every now and again the Bible gives us a picture of God's utter control. But the end that God has declared does not take away the means, it actually empowers the means. And the way God works out His sovereignty is through His people obeying Him. So we wake up in the morning and we live for God in our time and day, knowing that God in some way is superintending all things for His glory. Friends, to live any other way with any other worldview would make me go insane. This dream, verse 18, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So what's happening here in verse 19? That's a significant verse. Daniel gets the interpretation... And he knows that it's bad for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel, it says he's alarmed. But I don't think that that means that Daniel is scared for his own head. Because we've seen Daniel be really remarkably bold. And we're going to see him be remarkably bold here again. But what is striking to me here is we see Daniel actually hoping that what he is about to interpret in this dream is actually not meant for Nebuchadnezzar, although he gets this inkling that it really is, but that it's for his enemies. In other words, Daniel 
get this, has such compassion on the human being that he is standing in front of, who he is about to issue this interpretation that is very bad for him, he has such compassion on this man that he says, I hope this isn't really about you, but it is. Now think about Daniel having compassion for Nebuchadnezzar, the king that has come and destroyed his capital city of Jerusalem and carried him off into slavery for 30 years. Think about that. When I was a kid growing up in the 70s, I was terrified of Russia. The Cold War, it seemed like it was on the news every night. Reagan speaking to Gorbachev. Remember all those crazy little prophecies about Gorbachev's birthmark and all that kind of stuff? It just psyched me out, man. And then that really regrettable movie that my parents let me watch with Patrick Swayze, Red Dawn. Remember that? Russian paratroopers landing in some little schoolhouse, snatching kids. I mean, I would go to bed at night wondering if this, and I grew up right on the Mexican border, and I thought that was just like a little weak entry point into the United States. Is, is tomorrow morning the morning that the commies show up, they infiltrate through Mexicali, and they show up on my front lawn in El Centro, California, and take me away to some bread factory in Siberia. (laughs) Well, imagine if that actually happened. And Gorbachev conquered the United States and carried off a bunch of youths from America. I'm not sure that the brightest were in El Centro, California, but let's just say I was one of them. And I am in Moscow, serving him for 30 years. And now I get a dream that says, you're going down. I know my heart would be, well, I don't think it would be like Daniel's. It wouldn't be compassionate. I'm chastened by that. So, so what does that look like in our lives? Because I don't, I don't think Gorbachev is going to conquer the United States, and I don't think we have any uh, eastern despots to deal with. What does that look like in our lives? I think just political discourse. Do we depersonalize those whom we disagree with? Isn't it amazing? You know what's replaced road rage? Is Facebook rage. Isn't that amazing how you can depersonalize somebody when you're driving in a car and they make some stupid move? And it's just like, oh, God, that person changed lanes without even, ah. And now when somebody may disagree with us politically on some sort of social media, we just, they are Lucifer incarnate. What is that in us? It's pride. (laughs) It's pride, isn't it? Friends, we are much more like Nebuchadnezzar than we think. And Daniel's example chastens. Okay, let's keep, keep reading. It's getting 
It's getting uncomfortable. Verse 20. All right, so he says, I'm going to tell you the dream. I hope it's not for you. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and was, it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in this earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you, from the time that you know that heaven rules. So he's saying, you're that man, King Nebuchadnezzar. So remember back when we were talking about how it would have been sort of ironic to the ears of these first century readers of Daniel and even the, the present day, right after Daniel, readers of Daniel, that they would have thought, wait a minute, he's describing King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in ways that he describes God's kingdom for his people. In other words, God intends for his people to be like a tree that will bless the world. And here, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, this enemy of God's people, is actually like that tree that is, God is using to bless the world. What's the point here is that God is so sovereign that he is able and in fact does use his enemies to do his bidding, right? So that's, that's the mind-blowing thing about God's sovereignty. When somebody gets elected to office or raises to power, we think, oh my gosh, somehow God's redemptive plan for the world is on hold until we can deal and get this guy out of office. But God works in every way, through everything, for his good, for his glory and the good of his people. We were talking about this chapter in our staff meeting in as we were just sort of coming up with thoughts about this chapter, I just had this picture in my mind about how God treated Nebuchadnezzar. And this illustration was is that Nebuchadnezzar, like God's got this, this, this forest, this garden that he needs to tend and do work in, and he needs to beat back some brush. God has some gardening to do. And this crazy man with a machete is rebelling against the great master gardener God. And he's running at God with this machete saying, I, I can't stand you. I don't, I don't believe in you. I won't bow down to you. And, and this crazy man is running after the master gardener. 
And the master gardener puts his hand on that crazy man's head, stopping him as he's swinging the machete at God. And he turns that crazy man around who's still swinging his machete wildly. And he uses that crazy man to beat back the brush that he intends to have beaten back. In other words, God can use crazy despots who are swinging at him and don't even know why and take their craziness and use it for his purpose. Friends, that is sovereign. And that is good news. So some thoughts for us, some application for us, friends. God God is so powerful and so sovereign and so good and so unstoppable as we will see Nebuchadnezzar confess at the end of the chapter. Let's get real with ourselves. God doesn't need us. God didn't need Israel in the Old Testament. He doesn't need America now. God doesn't need really gifted people. God doesn't need you and me. He does what he does and he does it for his glory and the good of his people. God is God. One little thing before we read the rest of the chapter, just a, a little, uh, a little uh, a critique here by skeptics of the Bible is that this, this, um, this scene in the life of Nebuchadnezzar is not recorded in Babylonian history. Where Nebuchadnezzar, which we'll see in just a second, goes crazy. And there's actually this dream becomes fulfilled in his life and it happens. There's, there's just very well-written histories of Babylon. Well, the histories of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, don't record this scene where Nebuchadnezzar starts eating grass like an ox. Hey, remember that time when the king went crazy for about seven years? Well, it's not in the Babylonian history. Which has caused some people to say, well, this isn't really true. It's just made up. It's in the Bible. So there's no other outside source that val- validates this. But that, I think, actually gives credence to the Bible because it is not the custom of ancient history to record the craziness of their leaders, right? I mean, we kind of write out the embarrassing portions of history. But the incredible thing about the Bible is that it actually leaves in the stupidity of God's people, right? I mean, think about the Bible from cover to cover. Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, this father of the faith. Oh, and he's also the guy that lied about his wife being his wife two times to save his hide. Right? David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery and then to cover it up commits murder. And he is held up. It's it's out there. It's in plain view. Peter, this knucklehead of a follower of Jesus, is the early church pastor, right? Right? The Bible is exceedingly honest, and that should give people like us exceeding hope because it's really the only uh, religious book that is honest, and it's the only religious book that is true. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And this is Daniel warning Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel preaches to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Repent and let your repentance bear fruit. Be good. Stop being so proud. 
verse 27, is, that's just an incredibly important, that's, just, that's, Neb, that's Daniel preaching the gospel in shadow form to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 28, all of this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, so a year had passed since he had the dream and Daniel interpreted it to him. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And right now, if we're reading this for the first time, we're hoping maybe Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. Maybe he thought, well, you know, remember that time in the fire furnace when God rescued those guys? Remember that? Remember that other dream that Daniel had? Remember chapter 1 where God miraculously provided for his people? Maybe I should consider this warning from God's man, Daniel. No, listen to verse 30. On the roof, he was walking, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) If I was there, we just would want to duck right now because of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's the third time that phrase has been repeated in this chapter. That is significant. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. Listen to this description. This is not something that you want God to do to you. And ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Friends, opposing God doesn't make us more free and more human. It makes us less free and less human. There are terrible, terrible consequences to hardening our hearts against God. And then verse 34 and 35, two of the really most beautiful verses in the whole Bible, uttered by a pagan king after God humbled him. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And listen to his confession. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay, I mean stop, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble.
What a chapter. What a scene. Three brief reflections on Daniel 4 and how God humbles the, pri- the prideful. One, God warns the proud to repent. We see, we just read in verse 27 about how God sent Daniel to warn, to warn Nebuchadnezzar to repent, and he gave him a whole year to repent. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 2. He says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God, in his kindness, is delaying judgment, giving people time to repent. God warns us. I've seen this in my own life so many times when when I've been disobeying God and aware of it. God will just send little signs to give me a picture. I, I know I'm here. I'm hovering over you. I'm like the hound of heaven that is making you miserable. If you are not trusting in Christ, God has brought you here today and he intends, I believe, for this chapter to be a warning to you to stop trusting in yourself and to trust in what his son Christ has done on the cross for you. I've been rereading a classic book by this Anglican bishop in the 1800s with an awesome beard and his name is J.C. Ryle. He was a contemporary and friend of Charles Spurgeon. And J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Thoughts for Young Men. It is very short. I commend it to young men. I commend it to old men. I commend it to young women so that you know what type of young men you should look for. And I commend it to older women who should then commend to young women to read it so that they know what type of young men to look for. (laughs) This book is 150 years old. It is breathtaking how relevant it is to 2016. And listen to his words to young men about how God warns us, and he's warning them to not harden their hearts toward God. He says, young men, do not, be not deceived. Think not you can at will serve lusts and pleasures in your beginning and then go and serve God with ease at your latter end. It is a mockery to deal with God and your souls in such a fashion. It is an awful mockery to suppose you can give the flower of your strength to the world and the devil and then put off the king of kings with scraps and leavings of your hearts, the wreck and remnant of your powers. It is an awful mockery. And you may find to your cost the thing cannot be done. I dare say you are reckoning, or in other words, banking on, a late repentance. You know not what you are doing. You are reckoning without God. Repentance and faith are gifts of God. And gifts that he often withholds when they have long been offered in vain. That's a word right there. That's not just a word to you guys. We're prideful. 
God warns us all the time. And he may be warning you if you're not trusting in Christ and that's becoming evident. You need, to, you, need to repent. you need to not leave this room today before you cry out to God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But there may be hearts like mine who are Christians in this room who we've repented, but we still battle with pride. And I was thinking, we, we read together during the week. We read from just books. And this book we're reading as a, as a staff team is called The Reformed Pastor. And... Um, I read this little paragraph. We read it out loud to one another, and it just struck me about the work of a pastor and humility. He said, our work must be carried on. I don't have it on the screen. Just listen to this. Our work must be carried on with great humility. We must carry ourselves meekly and condescendingly to all and so teach others as to be ready to learn if any can teach us. God that thrust out a proud angel will not entertain a proud preacher. So I thought about my own pride. I thought about just arrogance that is, wells up in my heart. I thought about this word from Daniel 4. I thought about Ryle's word. And by the way, the first two young guys under the age of 30 that come up to me after church, I've got two copies for you that you have to read and then pass along to somebody else. God warns the proud to repent. Secondly, God is patient with the proud. God is patient with the proud. Why didn't God just smoke Nebuchadnezzar right after the dream was given to him? One month in, after he had that time to repent, why didn't God chop him down and make him eat grass like an ox? Why not six months in? Why did God wait? Why not nine months? Why not... Why not 10? Why not 11? Why did God wait a whole year? God is patient with the unrepentant and the proud for His glory and our good. God is patient. He's patient with us and He's patient with the world. Let's just think through for just a moment about God's purposes in being patient and our desire for immediate justice. Don't we just want, especially when somebody's being proud towards us, don't we just want God to be immediately, like, take action now? But if God got in the habit of taking action immediately, imagine where we would all be. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 about God's slowness and patience. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His purposes. Some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, God's being patient. He's holding it back. But there is coming a day that will sneak up on you, if you're like Nebuchadnezzar, disregarding God, that will come and it will consume you. So in light of God's patience and in light of God's seriousness, what does Peter say? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, God is graciously patient with my proud heart 
and your proud heart. And as the writer of Hebrews says, today, if you hear God's heart, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. That means, that means that when I get done talking and the band begins to play some songs of worship, you may need to, whatever it looks like for you, you need to do business with God and turn to God and not delay repentance. Don't say, young man, that two weeks from now or six months from now or a year from now, I will get serious with God. His gifts are, his repentance is a gift. Do not presume that it will be there next week or 12 months from now. And then finally, God will humble the proud. It will happen. He will do it for us all. God will humble the proud. And that is all of us. God's glory and holiness will be vindicated. So what hope is there for the proud? Well, the hope for the proud, friends, is in the gospel itself. We haven't really talked about what God has done in Christ up to this point, and here it is at the end as we think about how God will humble the proud, and then we think about, well, we're all proud. We're just like Nebuchadnezzar. We're proud. What, what is God going to do with us? And this is what Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is giving us there a a wonderful example and model of how we should be humble. And Paul is exhorting us to be humble like Jesus. But here's where the gospel gets even better. The gospel is not just be like Jesus, be humble like Jesus. Don't be proud, be humble like Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that even when we aren't humble and even when we still store up pride, Jesus doesn't just die merely as an example. He dies a death on the cross to take the penalty for the proud so that now God doesn't pour out his wrath on those who will repent, but he pours out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus is separated from God and his glory for us on our behalf on the cross so that we don't have to grow hair like eagle's feathers and and claws like birds and, and eat grass like a cow and suffer God's punishment. Jesus bears that horrible consequence for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Because friends, if we get to the end of this and we say, oh, well, the lesson here is, boys and girls, don't be proud like Nebuchadnezzar because if you do, bad things will happen to you. Well, yes, that's a command, that's an imperative. But the problem is, 
We are proud like Nebuchadnezzar. And if we could grit our teeth and go out of this sanctuary and say, okay, the lesson today was don't be proud. I can keep that going for about 47 minutes. But the problem is, I am proud. I am arrogant. I do rebuff God's warning. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just die as an example of humility, but he dies as a sacrifice to bear the wrath for my pride. If I will trust in him. And then listen to what he says in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name every so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, every tongue, every knee will confess and bow. The prideful and the humble, the unrepentant and the repentant will bow. The question is whether or not that is involuntarily or voluntarily. Do you have a proud heart like me? Let's bow before the risen king because Jesus has bore our wrath for us if we trust in him. Father, as we respond now, not because I I know specifics, but because I know my own heart and I know human nature, this room is full of proud people. We tend to think of ourselves and read ourselves into stories and we, we, we by default identify with a courageous Daniel. But really, we're much more like the arrogant Nebuchadnezzar. And then, we put ourselves in the position of being able to bargain with you. Saying, let me just exercise my little reign over my little universe for a little bit longer. And then, once I get this, once I blow this steam off, I'll come around and honor you. Lord, turn us from such folly. May we not reckon or depend on or bank on repentance on our own terms. Today, if we will hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts. Lord, humble us. Let us look afresh to Jesus who bore your punishment for proud hearts and who is exalted over all things, all kings, all principalities, all powers. Your word tells us, Lord, that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Make us humble people this morning by the power of your spirit, not by our own grit. Humble us, Lord. And as the worship team plays, 
Lord, let our humility take the form of singing songs of gratitude to you. Let our humility take the form of finding a corner, a place around this sanctuary to kneel and pray. Let our humility take the form of words of repentance spoken in areas where we have been proud to people that we have offended this week. Let our repentance take the form of husbands and wives repenting to one another and parents repenting to children and children repenting to parents. Lord, humble us, I pray, for the glory of your name for the satisfaction and joy of our souls. In Jesus' name.